Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Podcast 5, Cardiac Causes for Blackouts. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr Sarah McDermott. And I'm Dr Lisa Adams. And today we're going to be speaking to cardiologist Dr Karthik about cardiac causes for blackouts. Today we have Dr Karthik here with us to talk about cardiac causes for blackouts. So thanks very much for giving us the time to speak with us today. Thank you for your invitation. Can you just introduce yourselves for all the listeners? Uh, my name is Dr. Karthikeyan. I'm a consultant cardiologist with a subspecialty interest in cardiology intervention, cardiac intervention. Mm. And I work in Wigan Infirmary as well as at Withenshaw right, and fantastic. do my primary angioplasty in Withenshaw. Lovely. Um, so maybe just to start, it would be worthwhile for us to know what sorts of referrals are coming through to cardiology with regards to blackouts and near blackouts. Um, most of the referrals are related to patients having a bit of dizziness, lightheadedness, and patients who have actually lost consciousness, you know, while shopping, while doing things at home, washing dishes, stuff like that. Yeah. And those are the most common. And they tend to have symptoms associated like palpitations, a bit of chest tightness, breathlessness, and some just drop on the floor with no warning at all. Mm, right. And so you've mentioned some of the symptoms there that are typical for people with near blackouts and blackouts. Are there any other symptoms that you can think of that are important in a history? In a history, I mean, again, it's important to make sure we're not looking at things like absence, seizures, or a neurological cause for the uh, symptoms. And we do tend to ask them about things like tongue bite, incontinence, shaking of the arms and legs. And it's always useful to have a witness account. And so when a patient is accompanied by a family member or friend uh, who has been a witness, that's quite useful. Uh, But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. as life it is, we seldom have a true witness account yeah. all the time yeah. Yeah. and it's quite difficult but no it is useful and for whatever information we try and get it's useful we cannot completely rule in or rule out a cardiac cause per se unless if you have all the information provided from the patient history is the key number one mm-hmm. and number two again other associated symptoms associated features are helpful and again if it's a really bad blackout or syncope they tend to hurt themselves injure themselves head injury limb inj- injury mm. or or if they just manage to just slide down to the floor and lie down and that's slightly different yeah. Yeah. so it all depends on the symptoms really okay um, and you mentioned a few things there with regards to neurological um causes the absent seizures and things like that yes. um are there any other features in a history that would completely rule out cardiac causes to you things like ringing in the ears um any sort of Symptoms suggest you of vestibular symptoms yeah. and, you know, pain in the ears, ringing in the ears may point towards an ENT cause. Yes. So, yeah. And also it's important to ask whether there's been a family history of um, syncope and loss of consciousness yes. and history of sudden cardiac death in the young, ah, yes. um, which is very important in these patients. Yeah. And, you know, things like unexplained drowning, unexplained accidents mm. um, in, in a young cousin, sibling, relative, uncle, aunt, that sort of a thing. So we always ask that and uh, we cover all ground to make sure that they're, they're not at a risk of any life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias that could have caused yeah. them to collapse and have a syncope. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when someone presents in this way, we, we've got um, some inkling that there might be a cardiac cause for their, their blackout or their near blackout. Um, what examination should we be doing? Is there anything specific you'd think of? Well, we always do a general physical examination, make sure they're not anemic, their blood pressure, yeah. check lying and standing blood pressure, check their pulse, rate, rhythm, character, volume, the usual things. Yeah. Listen to the heart, look for any murmurs, okay. abnormal heart sounds. And also, um, 
look for things like uh, carotid bruises if it's an elderly patient. Ah, yes. It's very important to look for carotid bruises um, if they've got um, atherosclerosis in the carotids. And of course, if patients tend to have vertebral bacillar insufficiency where that is reduced circulation, mm-hmm. that can also cause presyncope or syncope. And again, that will need another sort of further investigation once you rule out other cardiac causes and ENT and other things. An ECG would be useful when, when so these patients do get an ECG when they come to clinic. We look for mm-hmm. things like whether they're in sinus rhythm or they're in atrial fibrillation or any other um, uh, rhythm, um, uh, rhythm, they have a rhythm change. Mm-hmm. Look for heart blocks, first degree AV block. Yeah. Uh, or even a higher AV block. If they're in AF, see if the ventricular response is slow or normal or fast. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we do investigate them further, and I'll cover that as we go along. But an ECG would definitely be useful uh, as, a, as a baseline. As a first line. Lovely. Brilliant. Yeah, um, which leads on perfectly to asking you about what other first line investigations you'd consider for these patients. So, after ECGs and lying and standing blood pressures, it'll be useful to get carotid dopplers, uh, an echocardiogram to look for any structural heart disease like aortic stenosis, aortic regurgitation, valvular heart disease, essentially. Yeah. Um, if they have any scar on the myocardium uh, and have severe left ventricular dysfunction, because scar on the myocardium could mean uh, generation of ventricular tachycardias that mm-hmm. can um, cause syncope. Right. Yeah. Um, a 24-hour halter monitor as a baseline start, and then but then they'll need probably prolonged monitoring, 72-hour tapes, two-week event recorders, or even a loop recorder, if they have uh, rather infrequent symptoms, but yeah. significant symptoms enough to make them, um, you know, go unconscious and is affecting yeah. the daily life. And also if it has implications to their day-to-day livelihood and driving and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, and Actually, just, just on that point, you mentioned about loop recorders. What exactly are they? So implantable loop recorders are devices that currently are like a memory stick that go below the skin um, on the chest wall. On the left mm-hmm. side, and uh, patients are trained to activate this uh, just before. Obviously, when they're in unconscious, they can't do it. Yep. But, but at least to activate it, if they have abnormal symptoms uh, like palpitations, feel dizzy or lightheaded, or uh, presyncopal, yes. um, and also if they do lose consciousness, we'll be able to interrogate these, similar to pacemakers, and try and see what the heart rate and rhythm was at the time when the patient had the symptoms, and try and correlate the symptoms to any cardiac. Uh, arrhythmias whether slow or fast yeah okay brilliant and in terms of um, again thinking um, from the cardiology perspective if we're not thinking neurological ENT we're solely thinking about cardiac and what are the common causes that you tend to find for syncope again it's somewhat age related I mean older patients they tend to have syncope more with either tachyarrhythmias fast heart rhythms atrial fibrillation or flutter and more commonly when they have first or second degree or higher AV block, mm-hmm. atrial fibrillation with um, uh, slow ventricular response rate because of heart block, sinus node disease in elderly patients because of uh, degenerative uh, changes in the uh, electrical uh, conduction system. Mm-hmm. In younger patients, it could be anything. It could we usually come across neurocardiogenic syn- syncope where they tend to have a drop in heart rate and blood pressure. Okay. Um, they can also have simple faints, vasovagal episodes, mm-hmm. um, de- things like dehydration, exposure to hot, humid environments and climates and not drinking enough fluids, keeping themselves well hydrated, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, and where we don't find any abnormal uh, abnormalities on the ECGs or loop recorders or 24-hour tapes. Yeah. yeah, fabulous. Yeah. And and many many time, trust me, we don't even find any underlying cause. But as long as you've ruled out all the sinister features and yeah. serious yeah. causes, that itself is reassuring. That's true. That's the most important thing. 
And so in terms of ECGs and monitoring in general practice, is it always useful to do a one-off ECG or is there ever a, a sort of argument for going straight for a 24-hour ECG? Um, a one-off ECG always is a start. It definitely yeah. is a start because yeah. you will get to see the baseline heart rate, heart rhythm, look for any evidence of bundle branch block in middle age to older patients. Um, and then you can go on to have a 24-hour uh, request. And again, 24-hour requests, generally they do tend to ask for a baseline ECG anyway. And when patients come for a 24-hour tape, from as long as I'm aware, they get a baseline ECG first before they put on the tape and sent home. Okay. Um, as far as I'm, I'm aware, colleagues in primary care can only request 24-hour tapes, but anything more than that prolonged monitoring is referred to secondary care or tertiary yes, care. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and is there an indication for 24-hour blood pressure testing or just going for the 24-hour ECG? Um, if we have reason to believe that the patient's blood pressure is dropping significantly or if we find a postural drop in clinic, some colleagues do tend to ask for 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. I don't tend to do that. Okay. But having said that, if a patient is quite aware of what's going on and he has a blood he or she has a blood pressure monitor at home mm. i do tend to encourage them to take their own reading um yes. when they feel dizzy lightheaded and uh, probably even do a reading when they're sitting and standing up and to keep a diary of the readings and show it to either the gp or bring it to clinic when they come to see me oh fantastic yeah that's a good idea yeah so if we talk about referrals now um so if the ecg or 24-hour ecg is normal uh, should we be quite reassured or would you often do more longer studies or more investigations, especially if they've had no symptoms when they've been wearing the Again, it, 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 it all is determined by the patient's symptoms mainly because if they've had just a one-off episode and you've not found anything abnormal and if they've not had any recurrences, then maybe you could reassure and leave them alone. But if they're getting recurring, uh, recurrent episodes, if it's affecting the daily activities in terms of getting to work, doing the job, uh, if they're at a risk to themselves or others, then yes, they will need more investigation, certainly. Mm. Yeah. Um, and if a 24-hour tape doesn't show anything, and if their symptoms are occurring less frequent than daily or even weekly, then we'll have to tailor our investigation and monitoring to the frequency of the presentation and symptoms. Yeah, that would make sense. And uh, I'll, I'll just um, ask you, if you don't mind, just to recap what would be the um, significant findings on a 24-hour ECG? Um, significant findings on a 24-hour ECG would include, first of all, sinus bradycardia, that is significant enough to make them feel dizzy or lighted. I can't throw mm -hmm. a heart rate at you because somebody might feel dizzy at 28, 29, 30 beats. Some might feel dizzy even at 40 beats. So it all depends. Yeah. And also if it's complete heart block, then yes, definitely they, they will be symptomatic. Mm -hmm. um, also, if patients are going in and out of uh, tachyarrhythmia like atrial fibrillation or flutter or a supraventricular tachycardia of some sort, or even ventricular tachycardia uh, in patients who are susceptible to VT, mm -hmm. then... Um, these patients will have to be investigated and obviously they will show up with symptoms when they have these uh, rhythm abnormalities on their monitoring. Yes. Um, in terms of uh, the odd ventricular or atrial ectopic beats, they report them as a percentage of the total heart rate. So less than 1%, 2%, we wouldn't worry too much about it. Now, what's the oh. sig significant number? We don't have a, a consensus really on what's significant, but anybody getting ventricular ectopics over 10 15%, we would probably investigate them further, look for the cause and treat them with things like beta blockers, drugs like beta blockers okay. um, to control the ventricular ectopy. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and um, thinking along the lines of um, having seen this person on the first contact and they've told us about their dizziness and we think it's maybe cardiac and we're going to arrange these tests, is there anybody um, on that first contact that would need an urgent referral, anything that they would say to us? Um, the 
reasons for urgent referral should usually be somebody who's actually lost consciousness, has had significant injury, um, maybe a road traffic accident uh, while driving if they've lost consciousness or felt syncopal and have had an accident. Um, and those who've had um, a significant family history, sudden cardiac death in the young, yeah. or if the syncope has been determined to be related to a cardiac ab- uh, arrhythmia, say, when they were playing sport, football, things like that, and they've had a defibrillator, an, an, um, an automated external defibrillator uh, that was required to shock them. But mind you, those patients have anyway been brought into hospital and investigated. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you feel things are not right in terms of any sinister features, um, then by all means, refer. And if in doubt, always discuss and refer these patients. Mm-hmm. And we have an excellent advice and guidance line now in our region, and uh, we do tend to respond back to GP colleagues promptly. Yeah, definitely the cardiology ref- ones, I think, are one of the fastest that I usually hear back from mm. when I've yeah. used it. It's really useful. Yeah, it's great for those slightly abnormal ECGs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> can't quite get a hold of. Yeah. Um, so um, who who should we be admitting on the day, do you think? What what constitute the sinister or wor- worrying features? Patients who have actually definitely lost consciousness, um, uh, who, have, who have had significant physical injury uh, mm-hmm. due to the fall, due to a fall, uh, and uh, who have been unstable in terms of the heart rate or blood pressure, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and they have associated symptoms like chest pains, mm-hmm. um, chest tightness. Um, yeah. And again, if if you if you have reason to believe that they have been incontinent, or they've bitten their tongue, um, and there are other neurological features as well. You know, if you're thinking about a new diagnosis of seizures or epilepsy, yeah. then they should also be going into hospital. Um, and just thinking about that, is there more need to be worried about people who don't get the um, kind of pre-syncable features or any warning signs? Not necessarily, no, no. Everybody's different. Not everybody gets typical textbook description of uh, symptoms for syncope or pre-syncope. So I think it's all on a case-by-case, individual basis. You have to sort of decide yeah. whether they will need urgent investigations or if you can wait. But then... As long as they have had warning signs, that somewhat helps, but not necessarily all the time. Okay, brilliant. That's, thing. That's good. Thank you. And are there any um, particular people that we can be reassured about in terms of the investigations that we've done and the symptoms that we've done and they don't need referral? The first thing is uh, patients who have had these symptoms for a long time with no serious adverse outcomes, you know, significant mm-hmm. injury falls and who have been pretty stable, whose lives have not been significantly affected by these symptoms. There's no family history of sudden cardiac death or any um, adverse cardiovascular outcomes at a young age. Mm -hmm. Um, Patients who um, have a structurally normal heart and who have had essentially all investigations being normal under the sun. I mean, 24-hour tapes, 72-hour tapes, two-week recorders, uh, ECGs, EEGs, CT brains, MRI brains, <laughs> works. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, not that I'm expecting you to investigate them with all these tests, but the more investigations they've had over a prolonged period of time with no um, significant findings, that's all reassuring. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. And um, can we talk a little bit about DVLA advice for some of these patients with blackouts and near blackouts? Yes, so the biggest thing with DVLA advice is any unexplained syncope DVLA says they shouldn't be driving unless they have been investigated properly. And again, it's up to the patients to inform the DVLA, but I would tell them that they would be at a risk of injury to themselves and the road users. And obviously we give examples of the high profile cases around where people have come to harm. And we do tell them, don't drive. But in terms of informing DVLA, 
it's it's the prerogative to inform the DVLA. Yeah. And obviously, it's always uh, sensible to seek DVLA advice if in doubt. So, as an aside, when we're talking about whose responsibility it is to report to the DVLA, Dr. Karthik is right here. The GMC do state that if a patient has a condition that could affect their fitness to drive, it's their duty to report it. Um, and yet the GMC have produced some excellent guidance around the ethical considerations of healthcare professionals reporting concerns to the DVLA if patients don't actually report it themselves. And it's vital reading if you haven't already. And um, it can be accessed on their website. Um, and what we'll do is we'll put a link in the episode description so that everybody can access that and have a read. Lovely. And um, back to the podcast. And is that um, th- is that actual blackouts then? So the proper yeah, syncope definitely. I tell them not to drive. And if but if they've had these symptoms of, of dizziness, lightheadedness when they're not driving, um, and they're standing, and if they have a clear cause, you know, like micturition syncope or uh, cough syncope, things like that, things where situations situations where they know what's going to provoke the um, episode or symptom. Yeah. And if it's not driving, then yes. But then if somebody has lost consciousness, just sitting down while mm-hmm. seated then that's something worrying and again i would tell them not to drive yeah so it, it all depends on the clinical situation but again if in doubt advise them not to drive seek dvla advice and then obviously um, we get written requests from the dvla for medical information yeah and based on the investigations that have been done and the results and our uh, reports the dvla uh, medical officers will then make the decision whether the person can drive or not so we don't tend to decide whether somebody can drive or not drive it's the dvla that decides then so as an aside in terms of advice about driving and blackouts, the DVLA's Assessing Fitness to Drive is the document to read. And we won't go through it here, but really recommend that all healthcare professionals are aware of the content of the guidance and where to seek further advice. Yeah, they have very specific guidance and it goes through all the different types of blackouts, as Dr. Karthik says, about when to stop driving. Again, we'll put another link to this in the episode description. Lovely. Now back to the podcast. That's right. And is there anything else that we should be counselling patients about um, whilst they're waiting for a diagnosis? So whilst they're waiting for a diagnosis, again, best thing to do is ask them to avoid situations where they could come to harm. Mm-hmm. You know, like operating machinery, driving. Um, if it's a painter, decorator, joiner kind of a person to avoid climbing on ladders, working yeah. on roofs and stuff like that, because they will be at risk of falling and hurting themselves or even with life-threatening consequences. Other than that, Again, always try and see if they can have people around them. Uh, avoid hot and humid environments if you think it's vasovagal or um, yes. simple veins. Uh, encourage them to drink plenty of fluids. Um, and that's about it, really. Yeah, that all seems quite sensible. Lovely. You mentioned before a bit about cough syncope and micturition syncope. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about those conditions and sort of what advice that you'd give to patients? Surprisingly, I've not come across that many patients with cough and micturition but we do come across some patients who go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and then lose consciousness so in those patients it makes sense for them to um, when they get out of bed to swing the legs across sit down for a couple of moments wait and then stand up gradually and then make their way to the bathroom Uh, maybe uh, light their way to and back from the bathroom so that uh, they have the they have the route well lit rather than walk in the dark and also try and keep the bathroom door open and so if they do f- fall or faint then they'll have help yep, someone will and somebody it. can come and open the door and get them and um, cough syncope i've not seen a cough syncope for ages um <laughs> okay. so uh, 
I mean, obviously, you can't tell them not to cough, but <laughs> yes. but at least maybe sit down and then, um, yeah, 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 and uh, recover. So yeah. that's about it, really. I mean, I can't think of any other conditions where they presented syncope. No, lovely. Thank you. Yes. I think that um, pretty much covers everything that we wanted to ask you about. Um, it was a great comprehensive overview. Um, yeah. It was really good. Um, so thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us about it. Is there anything else that you want to add or want listeners to take away from today in particular? Um, the key thing is, obviously, if in doubt about a patient's symptoms with syncope, by all means, seek um, a secondary care opinion and organize appropriate investigations yeah. and keep an open mind as to what the cause could be. I mean, it could be anything. And and many a times it's important to remember that we may not find an underlying um, yeah. cause at all, um, which is not a bad thing, but obviously it's, it's a bit of a frustrating thing for the patients because they endure this sort of um, scary situations where they feel dizzy, lighted and lose consciousness yeah. and we don't find a cause for them. But, um, I mean, they will need full in- investigations before we can sort of say everything is normal. So Yeah, yeah thank you. It's always useful to investigate them fully. Brilliant. Thanks so much. So we'll be speaking to you again soon about palpitations and we're very much looking forward to it. Thank right, you. We'll see you then. Thank you. So thank you so much, Dr. Karthik, for that summary of syncope. Yeah, it was it was really really useful. Um, for me, I think um, thinking about the other causes of syncope was important. So, yeah. um, making sure your ENT causes, neurological causes are ruled out, um, and also about the fact um, that we should be counselling patients about other things um, than driving. Oh uh, yeah. Because um, with epilepsy patients, you automatically think about ladders and swimming pools, but not necessarily with people who are getting lightheaded. So I'll definitely yeah. be doing that more in future. Yeah, that was really interesting. The discussion uh, about patients who have a long history of syncope as well was quite interesting that mm. if they've had a lot of investigations and it's a long-standing history and it's all seemingly quite benign and and uh, running a, a similar course that these are all quite reassuring features. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then also sort of considering in our history for syncope and pre-syncope, family histories of cardiac events um, and sudden infant death and things was also quite yeah, important. you don't think about how important it is actually to ask yeah. that. Yeah. So um, next time we'll be talking to Dr. Karthik again about palpitations. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, and if you want to get in contact with us, give us some feedback, let us know how we're getting on. Um, you can contact us um, by email at primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com um, or you can find us on Twitter at pckbpodcast. Um, we've also got a survey that you can fill in about the podcast if you want to give us some more specific feedback um, and the link will be in the description of the episode for everyone to um, access. Lovely. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Wigan in 2019. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the show notes for full details and any links we've mentioned in the episode.